This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Good evening and welcome to The Informer. Dean Beck with you this evening. Tonight we discover why Victoria's Legislative Council are through LGBTI communities under a bus when our Equality Minister, Martin Foley, joins us. And we'll also find out what Justin Lee, an evangelical Christian, has to say about the future of LGBTI communities right around the world. Well, as the parliamentary year draws to a close, two bills directly affecting our community have failed. The government introduced the Equal Opportunity Amendment Religious Exemptions Bill of 2016, designed to protect Victorian workers from discrimination when seeking employment at religious schools and organisations. Well, that didn't get through, and nor did the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Amendment Bill of 2016. Now, this was an election commitment of the uh, Andrews government, and it was designed to remove the need for transgender and gender-diverse people to undergo invasive, unnecessary surgery and be unmarried simply in order to obtain a birth certificate that reflected who they truly are. Victoria's Minister for Equality is Martin Foley, and he joins us on The Informer. Thank you for making yourself available today. My pleasure, Dean. Minister Foley, these two bills that were before Parliament would have had pretty profound impacts for our community in a positive way. Just what happens now? Well, the defeat of these two bills in the Victorian Legislative Council was a big blow for equality in Victoria, but we cannot give up the struggle. We will sit back and uh, think about the implications of this for a little while. Next week uh, we have our regular whole of government uh, LGBTI advisory council. This will clearly be right at the top of the agenda about how we regroup around these issues. Uh, For instance, losing the votes, well tying the vote, therefore losing it when it came to the uh, birth, deaths and marriages changes for trans and gender diverse people was a particular blow for our trans community. I spoke with Transgender Victoria last night and that community is understandably feeling particularly aggrieved. But I would also say redoubling in their resolve to see how we still can address this measure, whether it's through parliamentary or other moves, we'll need to have a very, a very considered discussion about a big blow, but uh, we will come back from it. I think further than that, it's clear that there are members of Parliament who just don't get it. The leader of the Nationals, Peter Walsh, was quoted as saying, under parliamentary privilege, I might add, uh, but if if people are self-describing what gender they are, are they actually women? That's the whole point, question mark. I mean, this is actually very offensive. It's terribly offensive. I thought uh, we had moved on Uh, In terms of our community, I thought we had seen some positive engagement from some of these very members of parliament uh, in the recent uh, LGBTI roadshow that uh, the Commissioner for Gender and Sexuality had undertaken across our state. If anything, I think this is a wake-up call to both the community and uh, its many allies, is that we have an enormous job ahead of us in terms of continuing to engage and continuing to change homophobic, transphobic and biphobic attitudes in our community. They run deep. Whilst we have have had a bit of a golden run over the last couple of years, 
I think this is a wake-up call that we have an enormous challenge in front of us. Louise Staley said, I cannot help but feel that such men engaging in a radical form of mansplaining, I don't even know what that means, telling women what really makes a woman. I mean... This goes nothing to uh, speak for our trans men community. Absolutely. At so many levels, this was a really offensive, backward-looking chapter in Victoria's parliamentary uh, contributions in terms of trying to achieve equality. We have a huge huge journey of change. Uh, If anything, we've seen a regression on one side of the chamber in more recent months. There's lots of speculation as to why, but what it does show is that we have to redouble our efforts as a community think of different ways to engage, but we cannot give up on our trans community. Uh, We cannot give up on continuing to seek to address the issues around uh, equal equal employment opportunity for LGBTI peoples, whether it be in faith-based or other settings. These are two important issues that we will consult and look to other ways around. There are Sadly, uh, legislative prohibitions in terms of the rules of the parliament, in terms of bringing back the same pieces of legislation in the same term, in the same forms, but we need to reconsider. I'm not even going to quote dickhead Bernie Finn, but Robert Clark said, I believe homosexual practices form a destructive way of life, destructive to both the individual and other individuals who are brought into that way of life. This is pretty hard to comprehend in 2016. Well, it's beyond hard to comprehend. It is downright offensive, homophobic, biphobic, transphobic nonsense. It needs to be called out, but equally, it needs to be recognised as there and holding up progress, particularly in the Victorian mm. Legis- Legislative Council, legislative progress. We need to perhaps spend more time uh, empowering and resourcing the LGBTI Victorians and their allies into this space. We need to perhaps think about ways and means that we can ratchet up that community engagement. Uh, We're here, we're not going away message, uh, and we need to change those attitudes. Sadly, sadly, we have seen um, the alternative government actually go backwards uh, in its policy space in this, this area over the last two years, and I think that reflects some deeper seismic changes about um, where they see LGBTI issues in their range of um, approaches. These were core promises of your party at the election. Do you think trying to rush these through in the last parliamentary week uh, was a mistake? Uh, No, I don't. Um, These weren't rushed. These were both processes that had two years' worth of consultation, engagement through multiple forums, opportunities both formal and informal to engage with the Liberal Party to try to convince them that this this, this was an election commitment a promise that we stood to our Victorian community, particularly to our LGBTI Victorians, we would deliver. The processes we went through, whether it was through the Justice Advisory Group with all sorts of uh, stakeholder groups about how the birth, death and marriages uh, reforms would apply, uh, whether it was through the Equal Employment Opportunity Process, talking to faith-based communities, this was the outcome of enormous consultation, only to run onto the rocks of uh, increasing levels of hysteria of biphobia, homophobia and transphobia in the Victorian Liberal Party. Uh, Leader of the Progressive Liberal Party, Matthew Guy, has remained fairly silent throughout. More than fairly silent. He has not said a word. Uh, This is the same Leader of the Opposition when early in this term indicated that uh, there needed to be a broader, uh, more progressive approach from the Liberal Party to regain the confidence of the Victorian community. Since then, whether it's through the IPA, whether it's through a series of pre-selection stouses, we have seen an increasingly aggressive, radical, extreme Christian right pre- 
presence in the Victorian Liberal Party and we've seen people kowtow to it, including the Leader of the Opposition. And that seems to be getting more and more profound, not less so as, uh, as we become more progressive as a state. It seems that uh, they're making inroads into the Liberal Party. It certainly seems to be. There certainly seems to be some areas of the state in particular. The Liberal Party are currently uh, in the rounds of a series of pre-selection. And it's not up to me to comment on their internal processes, but the outcomes of that is that we are seeing some of the so-called wet faction members lose out to this harder-edged, increasingly nasty, divisive right-wing groups within the Victorian Liberal Party who seem to be targeted by external forces wanting to prosecute a particularly extreme Christian right-wing agenda. We are speaking with the Minister for Equality, Martin Foley. You have had some great successes this year and uh, amongst them the uh, state apology. That yes. has got to be, without doubt, uh, one of the most important things uh, for oh, our look, community. Absolutely. And can I say, as an ally of the community, I expected it to be significant, but I was so moved by the symbolic importance that that apology meant for not just our LGBTI Victorians, particularly our older gay men, but the wider Victorian LGBTI community seem to have seen this as an important symbolic drawing of a line in the sand that the government of Victoria should not be there to persecute and prosecute LGBTI Victorians. It should be there as an ally. It should be there as a partner in making sure that the many levels of disadvantage that LGBTI people suffer are addressed, but perhaps even more fundamentally, as the Premier put it, feel proud, feel empowered to hold the hand of the one you love wherever you are. And I think that line summarised just so much of the journey we're on as a community, as opposed to the very unfortunate uh, defeat of the two bills this week in the Victorian Parliament. Well, on that day, both sides of Parliament did very well and spoke very well. Let's hope that in the new year, that might be the case too. Minister Indeed. Foley, thank you very much for joining us on The Informer tonight. Thank you very much, Dean. Justin Lee is the founder and executive director of the Gay Christian Network, a global organisation based in the USA that provides resources and support to gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender Christians. A self-confessed evangelical, Justin is an author, documentary filmmaker, podcaster and blogger. I caught up with him when he was here in Australia very recently. Justin Lee, welcome to Melbourne. Thanks. Thanks for having me here. You've recently moved to Orlando in Florida. Tell me what the experience is like to be there post Pulse and, and that feeling of, of a city, I guess, still grieving. Yeah. Um, it's Living there is, is interesting because I know a lot of people who know people um, who were uh, at Pulse uh, the night that, um, that the massacre happened. And... Uh, of course, I mean, the, those people are changed forever, and the city has changed forever. But one of the things that I find really encouraging about it is this is not a city that's just sitting in its grief, nor is it a city that is sort of moving on and pretending that it hasn't happened. Everywhere you go in Orlando, there is a sense that that the community has come together, and in particular, come together in support of the LGBT community, that there is a sense that an attack on any of us is an attack on all of us. And so wherever you go, you see rainbow hearts and signs that say Orlando Strong and Orlando United. And, and just uh, talking to folks about the work that I do in LGBT spaces, a lot of people bring up Pulse and bring up how they've personally been impacted, even if they're not a member of the LGBT community, because it feels very personal to, to everyone there. A lot of those people in that club at that time were Latino, uh, I imagine from a Catholic background. What sort of interaction has the various denominations played in the city's healing? 
Well, you know, because I wasn't I wasn't in Orlando at the time uh, that it happened. Um, I don't have as much firsthand knowledge of what specifically, you know, different denominations were doing there at the time. But I, I, I know that um, there has been an effort on, on the part of a number of churches and religious groups in the Orlando area and indeed around the world to show solidarity and to be a place of support and refuge for folks in the wake of, of the tragedy. The frustrating thing to me is that I know that some of the folks who were there are folks coming from homes where they weren't accepted for who they were because of their faith, because of their family's faith and their church's faith. And although I've been encouraged uh, to see some church groups come out uh, you know, and, and stand in solidarity with, with LGBT folks, there are too many that didn't, uh, that, that don't seem to believe that they have any responsibility for the, the ongoing pain that many LGBT people have experienced, whether or not those LGBT people are, are religious themselves. So I'm constantly pushing Christians across denominations to stand in solidarity with LGBT folks and to say, look, you know, even where there may be theological differences of opinion, people matter more than theology. Well, you'd think so, but so many times we see examples where the doctrine gets in the way of the pastoral care. Is there a shift, do you think, or is it still a great divide where the Word of God is by far the most important thing above and beyond any interpretation and how that then gets translated into looking after people? I think it, it. I think both are true. I think that there are certainly churches and Christian communities that are waking up and saying we've done this wrong, and and are to, to use some Christian language here are repenting of the way that they've treated LGBT people in the past and recognizing that they have a lot to learn. But you know, I come from uh, an evangelical background in the states. Many evangelicals in the states and many uh, other Christian denominations in the states and uh, you know here in Australia and around the world see their responsibility as standing for what they understand to be God's truth. Often they're concerned with saving souls. They're concerned with uh, you know, where people end up in, in the afterlife. And I understand that. As someone who grew up in that world, I get that. When, when I grew up saying lots of uh, negative things about gay people before I knew I was gay, I wasn't intending to be hurtful. I, I wasn't intending to not care about people. I thought that I said these things because I cared about people. But, but there was a lot I just didn't understand about how this came across and how this impacted people. And, and I believe, as a, as a Christian, that that there isn't a conflict between Christian doctrine and showing people love and grace and mercy at all times. And I would argue that any church that is failing to show mercy and love to people, particularly in times of tragedy is getting the doctrine wrong to begin with. At what point in time should we make a stand against the church? Well, um, obviously I'm, I'm biased here uh, as executive director of the Gay Christian Network. Uh, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is there are plenty of people that make a lot of... Ex and, and gay and lesbian people that make a lot of excuses for some of the bad behaviour of churches and forgive a lot. And I get pretty pissed off with that. So at what point in time do we actually make a stand and say, you know, bugger it, you're wrong? Yeah. Well, my strategy is to take a stand, but also to recognize that there can be very good people who have good intentions. But you know, you know what they say about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Uh, Those good intentions also send people under trains. 
Absolutely. And I think it's important that we not excuse bad behavior and the, the negative, the hugely negative repercussions of people's uh, bad behavior and bad theology by just saying, oh, well, they mean well. I, I don't think we can excuse it. At the same time, I do think understanding that they may mean well can help us figure out the best way to reach them. So there are times that I find that if I can sit down with folks and educate them graciously and kindly and compassionately, I can move them a lot further, a lot faster than if I were just to come in loudly yelling about how they're hurting people. At the same time, I also know that there are times when just sitting down and having conversations with folks doesn't accomplish anything because they are not interested in listening. And there are times that there has to be public pressure. There are times that um, you know other methods of, of getting people to the table have to be used. So I, I think it's possible to do all of it graciously, but, but firmly at the same time. Pentecostal and evangelical churches are masters of enrollment. They do it better than anyone. Why can't we somehow turn that back on them? <laughs> well, you know, I grew up in an evangelical church thinking that gay people recruited, so, you know. Uh, whoops. Um, you know, I think that there are many good things in the church that draw people to the church. I think a lot of people, you know, in the midst of all of the challenges of life are looking for a spiritual dimension and are looking to understand, you know, what's the purpose of it all? And does God exist? And if God exists, what does God think about my life? And, and what does that mean? And uh, so I think it's important to understand that there are a lot of good things that churches can offer, even if, uh, even for those folks who are listening and who are not religious themselves, it's important to understand that churches do offer good things to, to, to many people. But I don't believe that being uh, a member of a church ought to make somebody anti-LGBT or ought to... Um, Christians need to understand themselves as doing good in the world and not just going out and trying to change everybody's mind on everything because in the end they end up pushing people away rather than changing minds and they end up hurting a lot of folks in the process. And so I, I often will use the fact that I know my fellow Christians and especially evangelicals and Pentecostals and other folks who grew up like me, I know that they care about winning people over. And so sometimes I'll sit down and say, you're not winning people over, you're pushing people away. Let's talk about why you're coming across in a way that makes a lot of folks not want to listen to you. Not only that, you can leave a lot of scarring that can be lifelong and uh, forever damaging. Uh, you seem to have got through it okay yourself, but you know exactly what I mean. How do we heal those people? It there's not an easy answer to that. You're right. Uh, I, I think I've come through things fairly well. Uh, I've written a book about my experience. But at the same time, uh, I still have a lot of pain. I still have a lot of wounds. There are times that people say things and I find myself getting irrationally angry. And I think, well, why am I so angry? And it's because of stuff that, that happened to me in the church, you know, years and years ago. Uh, I know many people who say there are songs they can't hear or, th you know, that they just, even if they are privately religious, they can't walk into a church because it's just too triggering for them. And so I think everybody's journey in healing those wounds is is different. And I think we have to respect uh, people's journeys and not push people in, in ways that, uh, you know, for, for one person, it may be easy to, to get over that. And for someone else, it may be very difficult. And they may need therapy and a lot of time, and they still may never get over those wounds. And for some, it's simply a case of walking away, cutting the cord, never entering or considering their faith or, or their church again. That's purely a survival mechanism, and you can't blame them for that. I, I, I certainly don't. As a Christian myself, I believe that there's a lot of good in the church, and so since I think there's a lot of good in the church, it makes me sad when, when that happens. But I absolutely understand it. I've watched many of my friends walk away from 
from the church that they grew up in, from organized religion altogether. I've been tempted to myself many times, and I don't blame anybody for doing it, because when you've been that hurt, it's, it is a, a natural means of self-preservation, certainly. You founded the Gay Christian Network. Tell me about the work that it does. I believe it's the, one of the largest, or if not the largest, organization of its kind in the U.S. Uh, yeah. We got our start 15 years ago, in 2001, and we started off as a little online, almost an online support group for LGBT Christians who were trying to figure all this out, many of whom had been wounded. We've grown from that into an organization of folks around the world, based in the U.S., though, who are working to make sure that LGBT folks are fully supported in Christian spaces and that Christians become the greatest allies of the LGBT community rather than the greatest enemies of the LGBT community. So we do a lot of work in spaces that are the least affirming of LGBT people, working to change minds in a variety of ways. We put out uh, resources to help churches uh, come along that path and, and become more supportive. Uh, we have private conversations with folks. We have a conference every January in the States um, that moves around the country and kids will bring their Christian parents who don't affirm them to the conference and they get a chance to experience a Christian worship environment with all these LGBT people and it changes their minds a lot of times. So there are a lot of things uh, that we do and it's something I never, when I got this started 15 years ago, I didn't expect to be running this big organization. But now our conference brings in 1,500 people every year. We've got over 30,000 folks registered on our website, and it just keeps growing. And to me, that just shows that there is a, a tremendous need for this kind of work. You really are at the pointy end of the, the hard work of getting people across the line. How is your work with the Westboro Baptist Church going then? <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot I could say about Westboro. My friend Jeff Chu wrote a book called uh, Does Jesus Really Love Me? And there's a chapter in that book where he, as a gay Christian man, spent time with the folks at Westboro. And he has such interesting things to say about his experience there. And knowing him and hearing more about his experience with them has helped me understand what motivates them. But um, I don't see them coming around anytime soon. But there are a lot of other folks who I think are movable, who other folks wouldn't think are movable, but I think are. Are they unique in having such a vengeful God? I mean, I've only watched Louis Theroux's uh, docos on them, and he's done too. But their God is so hateful. Yeah, I don't share their view of God at all. Uh, they they are um, really extreme Calvinists. They believe God's already decided who's saved and who's not, and that their responsibility is not to convince anyone uh, to get saved, because God's already chosen that, but their responsibility is to be as loud as possible so people are, in their view, without excuse. But I think... I think that's crazy. Uh, but, but I'll tell you a great story. They came and protested our conference a couple of years ago. And there were folks at this conference who it was their first time being in an LGBT environment. They were scared to death. And to have these folks say they're going to come and stand outside with these hateful signs, you know, just couldn't stand. So we found out what morning they were coming. They were going to stand on a street corner between the hotel where people were staying and the convention center where the conference was happening. So a bunch of the parents who were attending the conference got in touch with the, uh, a, a number of local church folks in the city where the conference was happening, and they came and stood outside the convention center early that morning <coughs> along that corner with their backs to the protesters facing the street where all the people would walk, holding signs of love and affirmation and singing songs, and it started raining on the protesters and these parents and church folks alike. And they provided, even in the rain, they stood there and they gave all this love and affirmation to people as they walked into the conference, and a rainbow appeared in the sky over top of West 
Westboro. And it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. I hope someone got a photo of it. <laughs> yeah, they did. It was just wonderful. Is it true that uh, there's a rainbow house that has popped up opposite where they, they live in the US? That someone set up some sort of uh, anti-Westboro house? I, I've seen that. I haven't ever actually been there, but I've seen that something like that exists, yeah. The book that you've recently released, Torn, it's a memoir of your experience growing up and uh, having a disconnect between your faith and your sexuality. What was the pivotal moment for you where you got it and all was okay? You know, I don't know if there was a single pivotal moment. It was a long journey for me because the the theology I grew up with told me that, that gay people couldn't be Christians. And I knew I was a Christian, but then I was discovering that I was gay. A lot of folks would say, well, why not just leave Christianity? But I just couldn't. It was such a part of who I was. And so it took me a long time, a lot of studying the Bible, a lot of really wrestling with this. And ultimately, I came to the conclusion that the Bible not only doesn't condemn gay folks or LGBT folks, but um, but read properly actually has a lot of great things to say for us. This is something that surprises a lot of people, Christian and not, when I say it. And then I can sit down and say, well, here's why I think that, you know. But I wrote the book not just because I thought that I had a story to tell, but because after all these years of doing work with LGBT Christians, so many people have come to me and said, my parents or my pastor or, you know, this person I know who I care about doesn't understand me as a gay person, as a bi or trans person uh, because of their Christian faith. They have all these negative views. Do you have a book to recommend for someone coming from this conservative Christian viewpoint to help them understand? And I never had anything great to recommend that spoke that language. Someone who's normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because a lot of LGBT affirming stuff is written in a language that just doesn't connect with a lot of those Christians. So I said, well, I'll write it. And I did. And it's called Torn. The subtitle is Rescuing the Gospel from the Gays versus Christians Debate. And uh, people tell me it's been really helpful in, in changing their, their parents' and pastors' minds. So And in saving lives. And uh, I know that the work that you do does save lives. May you continue to do it and uh, change opinions all around the world. Thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And just on the situation with the Legislative Council and them throwing the LGBTI community under the bus, so to speak, as in our first story with the Minister for Equality, Martin Foley, this message has come through. It says, Dear Dean, the influence of the IPA should not be ignored. Moderate Liberals are sick of the fringe far right. Well, I can tell you, if Matthew Guy and the Liberals want to be considered as a viable alternative in the next state election, they're going to have to get pretty serious about uh, connecting with our community. I can assure you of that. That's it from me for The Informer tonight. You can find all these interviews available for download from Joy's website, joy.org.au forward slash The Informer. You can follow The Informer on Twitter at The Informer Joy. Follow me on Twitter at Dean Beck on air. Till next time, you keep well. Take care. Bye for now. Joy 94.9 is a GLB TIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. Joy 94.9.
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.